Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Welcome to episode number 12. On this week's episode, we talk about what I believe to be the best bang for your buck in the current Mopar Project Car market. We also talk Project Car of the Week, another great listener story, and the addition of a new segment of the show called High Performance Parts, which isn't at all what you probably think it is. I also touch on unrestored, driven mostly as found Mopars, and the controversial term barn find. Don't go anywhere. You're tuned into the best Mopar enthusiast-driven podcast on planet Earth. And I am your host, Chris Albrecht, better known as the Mopar Hunter. And this is Talking Mopars. You're listening to Talking Mopars with the Mopar Hunter, your direct connection to all things Mopar. We are firing once again on all cylinders here on Talking Mopars. I'm really excited to introduce this new segment called High Performance Parts, but that's not going to come until right after Project Car of the Week. So we're going to have to wait a little bit for that. But before we get the show on the road, I want to briefly touch on a couple of things. First, I want to say that I am extremely hopeful that in the next few years, we're going to continue to see a rise in old Mopars getting back on the road that are driven around in as-found unrestored condition. There is movement in the streets, folks, and it's a movement of enthusiasts getting these cars and trucks back on the road without them undergoing complete restorations, and it is absolutely awesome. It's really funny to me that there are a lot of people who just don't get it. Some people don't understand why we want to drive around these, you know, rot boxes. You know, they look at these cars and they think, look at that piece of junk. You and I think differently because we appreciate the heritage, the high-performance heritage that these cars represent. I don't know about you, but I have no problems driving around in a car that other people are like, oh, look at that piece of junk, because guess what? You're not driving and I am, and I'm having a good time. So, you know, kick rocks. And I know that there's a lot of people that listen to this podcast that are of the same mindset, that just love old Mopars, whether they're restored or not. Most of the people I know are more concerned with function over flash anyway. You know, would you rather have a really nice car that doesn't do anything but sit in the garage, or would you rather have an okay car that you can go out and enjoy, roast the tires on, you know, do fun stuff, break the speed lot. No, I'm just kidding. Or am I? Anyway, um, it's important for those of us on a limited budget to remember that you don't have to break the bank to have a good time in an old Mopar. You know, have an open mind. These cars are cool. And if you don't think these cars are cool, then maybe this isn't the podcast for you. The second thing I want to touch on is barn finds. Uh Uh-oh, here we go again, the barn find debate. 
it's no secret that I've gone hard in the paint with people throwing that term around as if every old Mopar that isn't restored is a barn find no matter where it was actually found. My belief was always that you literally had to find the car in a barn to call it a barn find. You couldn't find one in a backyard, in a garage, in a carport, or on a, uh, on a farmer's field and call it a barn find. Or can you? I was actually, this episode of the show was going to be all about barn finds because I thought it was going to be funny that I talk so much crap and then, <laughs> you know, do an episode about barn finds. But anyways, I was doing some research on the topic of barn finds and I thought, you know, what better way to research barn finds than just Googling the term barn find and seeing what pops up. So I typed barn find into the search bar and a definition of the term was the first thing that popped up courtesy of Wikipedia. Now, this is a direct quote from Wikipedia for the term barn find. Check this out. A barn find is a classic car, aircraft, or motorcycle that has been rediscovered after being stored, often in derelict condition. The term comes from their tendency to be found in places such as barns, sheds, carports, and outbuildings where they have been stored for many years. The term usually applies to vehicles that are rare and valuable, and which are consequently of great interest to collectors and enthusiasts despite their poor condition. Barn finds can fetch high prices when sold. A 1967 Ferrari 330 GTS Spider was sold for US $2.1 million in January of 2014. The car had suffered an engine fire in 1969 and had been stored in a garage for 44 years. Despite this, it sold for more than a fully restored example sold in 2013. In the past, barn find vehicles were typically subjected to exhaustive restoration to return them to a condition close to that when they were built. However, the current trend is to treat the cars more sympathetically, to avoid restoration that removes evidence of the car's history, and to place greater value on any original features the car retains, even if they're in poor condition. In some cases, intense restoration can actually lower a car's value. Well, there you have it, folks. My literal definition of a barn find being a car actually found in a barn is not entirely accurate, according to Wikipedia. This is a podcast, so you can't actually see my eyes rolling up and into my skull right now. So I pose this question to you. What do you consider a barn find? I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I think I'm going to go buy some property, build some janky plywood sheds, park some old Mopars in them, cover them in dry dirt, and start selling barn finds for profit. You know, obviously I'm kidding. But I'm wondering if you find this as ridiculous as I do. Maybe I'm too picky. I'm still saying if your car wasn't found in an enclosed building painted red with white trim that looks like it was once owned by a guy named, I don't know, Old McDonald, you probably don't have a barn find. And that's sarcastically all I have to say about that, so... <laughs> That's the definition of barn find as defined by Wikipedia. So let's go ahead and really get this show on the road. This week's project car of the week is a 1969 Plymouth Roadrunner post car with a 383 and an automatic transmission for 15 grand. Let's read the ad. Project car 69 Roadrunner 383. Cubic inch automatic, 15,000 for all questions, call and ask for David. This ad only has a few pictures and they aren't the best quality. Not the worst I've seen, but 
we are trying to sell a car, right? Let's try and be a little bit more descriptive, and hey, let's take a few more picks. I'm, I'm digressing. I chose this Roadrunner as Project Car of the Week because... Hold on. Hold on. Let me, let me go back. This is a problem with selling cars online is you always get these ads that are so vague and pictures that are so lackluster that, you know, it really, it annoys me. It really does. You know, hey, David, seller of this Roadrunner, I like the car. I want to know more about it. You know, I want better pictures. I want all my basic questions answered before I call you. That way, I don't have to sit on the phone for an hour, and we can just clarify a few things, and I can figure out if I want to come see the car, and we can schedule a time. I don't want to be sitting on the phone for an hour or two talking to you about this car with information that you could have told me in this ad. Because who knows how many calls you're going to be getting, and if I keep calling, your phone's busy because you're answering an hour's worth of questions to everybody that calls. That could be a problem. So, sellers, if you want to sell your car, take great quality pictures and be descriptive in your ads but let's let's get back let's get back on topic here let me let's get back to the discussion i chose this roadrunner as project car of the week because it seems to be solid and the bones appear good enough where you could really just get this thing fired up get it safe and go have a good time it's an arizona car so one could assume that rust issues are minimal but the only way to really tell is if you actually go and inspect the car. There's no pictures of the interior, but from what I can see, no front seats, which, you know, if if you're on a budget, you could really go to, you know, one of the big parts people, and they usually have these cheap bucket seats. I've got a set for my Dart because I'm cheap, and, you know, you could go that route, or I'm sure you could find some B-body buckets or even a bench. Um, out there on the old internet and so the interior looks like it's missing the front seats like I said it looks like it's missing the sail panels it's really hard to tell from these lackluster pictures but let's assume the interior is gone with the exception of the dash and the steering column okay we also don't know if it's a column shifter or not so we can guess it's a column shift but again that would just be a guess I'm also guessing that this car has had some recent paint work done, and I can make that guess based on the marker lights not installed on the front fenders or the rear quarters. So there may be some concerns about the quality of bodywork, especially you know when it comes to how much filler the car has on it. Sometimes paint can do a good job of hiding secrets, so that's why it's always good to get underneath a car and check for any damage sustained from impacts that the car's received throughout its life. Getting under a car can tell you so much. It tells you quite a bit about the history. So I always suggest looking under any car that you're thinking about buying. I've seen some pretty gnarly stuff just by looking in a trunk before, too. So depending on you know how much of the interior remains, you may be able to have a glance at the backside of the body panels or inside the doors, you know, if you're missing the door cards. The car does have a fiberglass six-barrel hood, which is cool. But you can see that the fitment leaves a little something to be desired, but that can always be fixed. Uh, the car looks like it's painted B5 blue. I'm not sure if that's the original color or not, since there is no picture of the fender tag. And that's a bummer. The rear bumper looks nice and bright, so it could potentially be an aftermarket replacement. Or, you know, maybe it's just uh, very well cared for and there was never an accident or you know what I'm getting at. 
It's got what appears to be Weld Racing Aluminum Pro Star wheels. So that's kind of cool. The rears look a little deeper dish. It's got a nice stance to it. Overall, I'd say this car looks like a solid start to a project to get on the road and enjoying rather quickly if it runs and drives, and which would be nice to know, David. Why didn't you put that in the ad? Um, you know, my main concerns are the bodywork and drivetrain. I really wish that sellers would just take better pictures and be more descriptive. I don't know how many times I can say that. You know, sellers can save themselves a lot of headaches by disclosing information. You know, just be truthful. Provide truthful information about the car's history as much as you know. Include a lot of nice pictures. You know, complete pictures is more important than quality, I guess. But, I mean, in an ideal world, you'd get nice, complete pictures of the car. And those would include closer shots of possible areas of concern. Because as a buyer, if a seller is willing to disclose the problem areas of a car, that automatically, with me anyway, gets them trust points in my book. Because they really don't have to disclose, you know, all the history of the car and all the bad stuff that they know about it. Hey, there's a sucker born every minute, and I just don't want you or me to be a sucker. So be sure to get as much information about any car that you're looking at. Um, get as much information as possible. So back to pictures. I just get so annoyed when pictures are taken of a car and they don't show the whole thing. If you take any full shots of the car and part of the car is not in the picture because you didn't frame it correctly do it better. It's really not that hard to take good pictures, okay? I've heard sellers make the argument that no one reads the ads completely, and they ask questions that were explained in the ad. Hey, I understand that, but you never want to limit potential buyers by not providing enough information. Some buyers will look at an ad, and if it looks like garbage, they're going to just pass by the car just because they're like, well, you know, questions have been raised. <laughs> Like this ad for me, it raised so many questions that the only way to get the answers that I'm looking for is to call and go look at the car. Some sellers are purposefully vague in their ads because they either are too lazy to type out a good description and they think they're a good salesman, so they assume that they'll get more calls if they don't have a lot of information. But newsflash, Mr. Mixseller, you're not a salesman, so you're better off letting the car do the talking. And as a buyer, as strange as this sounds, you should absolutely let the car do most of the talking because the car can actually tell you a lot of information if you know what to ask. And by ask, I mean if you know what to look for, you can see things that a normal person just looking at a car doing a once-over probably wouldn't see. But if you're inspecting every square inch of this car from the top to the bottom, from the inside to the out, underneath, all the little nooks and crannies, if you really get into looking at the car and are doing a proper inspection, you'll be able to find some stuff that a normal person that doesn't know where to look would probably miss. So as a buyer, if a seller doesn't put a good effort into actually trying to sell the car by creating a great ad, then I'm going to question the amount of effort that they put into any work that was done on the car. It's always best to look at cars in person, but I have heard of gamblers buying sight unseen off eBay. And that's just crazy talk to me. I, I don't know if I could ever do that, but let's get down to numbers of the car. Okay, he wants 15 grand, and there's not a lot of information to go on. The lack of information alone makes the number of 15,000 drop in my head immediately. But let's assume that the car is solid and would make a good driver quality car. Let's talk about some potential numbers and my opinions based on what little we know about the car. 
I think that anything less than 10 grand on this car, based on what I see, is a pretty good deal. And anything above is fair, but I personally wouldn't pay 15,000. I think, you know, it's hard to say, but, you know, 12 to 13 is probably where I'd draw the line. And that's assuming that it's in good shape and runs and drives. Uh, that's just my opinion. And, you know, I'm sticking to it. <laughs> it can be a challenge picking the cars for this segment of Project Car of the Week because, you know, there are so many factors involved and I can't be there in person to check out the car. So I can essentially assume whatever I want about the car or a car, especially when it comes to ads that are so vague. What we can take away from this week's Project Car of the Week is, you know, a big takeaway for sellers is create better ads, including descriptions and pictures that are good and obviously truthful. Put some effort into it. And for buyers, I'd say the most important takeaways are to always get under a car and generally just do a thorough under vehicle inspection and vehicle inspection period. The second piece of advice I would have is to let the car do most of the talking. Believe it or not, a car does have a lot to say if you know what questions to ask. All right, folks, it's time for high performance parts. This segment is a new addition to the show, and its name is admittedly deceiving. We aren't actually talking about parts that you can install on your Mopar. But we are talking about parts that Mopars have had in both film and television. I have had a bunch of listeners reach out to me and request that I do a show about Mopars used in TV and film. But my issue with an entire episode devoted to Mopars from Hollywood was that there are just so many that it would be hard to pick, and some of my favorites aren't that famous. In fact, most of my favorite Mopars on screen were in one single movie. And the parts they played were all small, small parts. They were all just bit parts. They weren't even featured vehicles in the movie. So we're going to start high-performance parts with my number one favorite movie Mopar of all time. And I bet that you wouldn't be able to guess what that car is. Go ahead and try. I'll give you five seconds. Four, three, two, one. My favorite movie Mopar of all time was the first car scene in the opening street racing sequence of the cult film Tulane Blacktop, released in 1971. The first car you see in the movie is a 1969 Dodge Charger Daytona, lighting up the tires, preparing for a street race. This Daytona was known as King Daytona and owned by the legendary street racer Big Willie Robinson. Big Willie played an instrumental role in organizing street racing in the Los Angeles area of Southern California, and him and his cars were so well known that they actually ended up making die-cast versions of his Daytona, and they can be found and bought for a pretty penny, and anybody in street racing in Southern California knows who Big Willie is. Big Willie was quite the character, and he will most definitely be featured in a future episode of this podcast. Some shocking revelations have been recently made about Big Willie's life, and while they were extremely disappointing to many of us in the community, you can't deny the impact that Big Willie had on street racing in LA during his younger years. My episode on Big Willie will focus mostly on his involvement in street racing and Mopars, and not so much about the controversy surrounding him. 
There you have it, folks. My favorite movie Mopar of all time was only shown for a few seconds at the beginning of Tulane Blacktop. That Mopar was Big Willie's lettered up, red with a black stripe, 1969 Dodge Charger Daytona known as King Daytona. My favorite movie Mopar of all time. This week's listener story was submitted by Kevin Oman. Hi, Chris. I am a big fan of your podcast. I am really happy that you are presenting something that speaks to so many of us in the Rusty Mopar community. I am looking forward to many more episodes. I wanted to share one of my Mopar stories, kind of like the ones you have talked about in previous episodes. Not sure if you will want to air it or not, but here it is. My first Mopar was a 1973 Charger. It had a 318 in it with a column shift automatic. My wife at the time had an old Plymouth Horizon and it happened to crater fairly close to a car dealership, Chevrolet if I remember right. This was around 1990. Anyway, we walked to the dealership to get some help with the car and made our way there via the back lot. Sitting way back in the corner was this beautiful gold charger with a white vinyl top. It had wide tires in the rear and had that typically 80s muscle car stance. It even had one of those Bigfoot accelerator pedals. There was a little rust in the rear quarters like any car in Nebraska, but I had certainly seen much worse. Needless to say, I really, really liked this car. The wife and I made our way into the dealership and explained the situation with our defunct hatchback laying dead down the street. Of course, they were quite friendly and offered to drag it into the dealership to see what could be done. While they were doing that, I asked about the charger in the back lot. The salesman explained that he had literally just took it in on trade. Turns out this was the previous owner's high school car and had been hanging on to it since, but he started a family and needed a more practical car, so he was not able to keep it. My car at home was a 1975 Buick Century that I had spent quite a bit of money restoring and was my daily driver. Given I was 20 years old, a newlywed, and basically broke, I didn't have much leverage with my wife or the dealership. I really wanted this car. It was a beautiful old Mopar. I had to come up with something. Given my wife's car needed close to $1,000 in repair, I used the only tactic at my disposal and suggested that we purchase the car for her to drive and fork over the horizon and get the charger. This was a bit of a task as she was not too keen on driving such a big car, but somehow I got her on board. The final total on the car was $1,200 and we had to get a loan in order to drive it home. I did mention I was broke, right? We finally got the car and she slowly began to adjust to driving the charger. She gave it all she could, but never got really comfortable with it, especially that winter. Somehow, she ended up talking her parents into getting her a smaller car front-wheel drive. They bought her a few years old Ford Escort, and we ended up with an extra car. Could not have planned it any better. As life and married life progressed, I ended up having to make a choice. Seems two cars is too many for anyone, to some. The Mopar won out, and I sold my Buick. The Charger was my driver now and got me through college. By the mid-90s, we were both working and were able to buy new vehicles. She traded her Escort in for a Pontiac Sunbird, and later I got a Chevy S10 pickup. We ended up with a spare car again, and I was not any better at convincing her that was a good idea. I very reluctantly sold my Golden Charger. I had so many great plans for that car. After that, I knew I had to get another Charger, and as much as I loved the 73, I knew the Holy Grail model was the 1969. From the day I sold my 73, I set my sights on somehow getting a 69. I went as far as having a die-cast model car Velcroed to the dash of my work van. My goal was constantly in my face, and I kept my eye out for any for sale listings. I was always perusing Auto Trader, Classifieds, and the Thrifty Nickel for chargers. The internet came along, and I was able to expand my searching. I still was not a man of great means, and even back then, they sold for much more than $1,200. I kept dreaming, searching, hoping one day I would have my dream car. The year 2000 madness came and went, and my marriage had run its course after 10 years. We separated and later divorced. About the time the divorce was final, I made the last payment on my S10. It only had 25,000 miles on it after five years. I was waiting for the title to come from the bank, and then some kid turned right in front of me and totaled my first brand new car. 
After going back and forth with the insurance companies, I ended up getting $6,000 for the truck. As chance would have it, an ad popped up for a 69 Charger in a neighboring city. I lived near Dallas, Texas at this time. It was a beautiful green Charger with green interior and a green vinyl top. It ran and drove with a 383 HP automatic. The seller had it listed at $10,000. It was still a bit out of reach. I still had a rental car for another week or so. I thought, what the heck, and contacted the seller and set up a time to come see it. We met behind a jiffy lube and I remember how my heart raced as soon as I laid eyes on it. The top was pretty dry rotted, there were paint can rings all over the trunk lid, and a little crumple in the front passenger fender. Growing up in Nebraska, I was in awe at how unrotted out this car was. Talking with the owner, he told me he found it in a barn. Yes, I know, but this was before that was a thing. He said it had been stored there since the late 80s. He said he had been cleaning it up and had the transmission rebuilt. You could still see embedded grunge in various places all over the car. He also told me he was in college and struggling with paying for it and appeasing his new wife. Sound familiar? He could not hide his pride in this car. We took it for a test drive, and it felt so strange driving the car I had dreamed about for so long. I forgot how long the front end of those cars were compared to my S10 pickup. We talked more and more, and everything was great until we got down to money. He was asking 10000 for the car, and I was recently divorced, in debt, and only 6000 in the bank. I was quite honest with him about this, and he appreciated that. He was also quite open with me about his financial situation. I ended up going home as he said he had someone else coming to look at the car later that night. A couple of days went by and I started looking at more practical cars to buy. I got a call on the third day from the charger owner and he asked if I was still interested in buying it. I could feel a little excitement building and it probably transcended into my voice as I eked out, yes I am. He then informed me that he had talked it over with his wife and decided if I could bring them cash he would sell me the car. I remember the phone shaking in my hand as I discussed the when, where, how details. I was going fast forward in slow motion after that. I immediately left work and went to the bank, drained my checking account and headed out to buy my dream car. We met up an hour or so later and exchanged cash and paperwork. I could see in his eyes that his dream with this car was ending and truly felt his pain. I'm not sure what all went on during those three days, but all I can surmise is that they really needed that money and the wife was applying a good amount of pressure not knowing what that car meant to him, nor what a treasure it was. The feeling of that first drive home was incredible. There is nothing like driving home a classic Mopar for the first time. I was so proud and frankly still in shock at what just happened. I started addressing many of the issues with the car. I got it painted, put a new vinyl top on it, replaced all the brakes, rechromed the bumpers, etc. I had her looking really sharp after about a year of picking at it. To the previous owner's barn find claim, I did have to chip two or three mud bird nests out of the back of the bumpers, so yeah, I believed him. Now, 19 years later, I still have the Charger. It has been with me through some trying times in my life. Other project cars have come and gone as well, but this will always be my dream car. And there is nothing like having your dream car in your garage. Not sure how good of a Mopar story that is, but it's mine. I started out a Buick guy mainly due to my family's influence, but got the Mopar bug as a young man and still never tire of looking for project cars. I somehow feel Mopars chose me and have never let me go. Hey Kevin, thanks for the story. I actually feel like Mopars chose me as well, so we have that in common. It's always rough when you have that one Mopar that gets away. It's a story that I hear all the time. Some people never even end up filling the void left by their first Mopars, but then you get stories like yours. I love that you eventually got back into a Mopar and you did it with one of the most iconic Mopars ever, the 69 Dodge Charger. Talk about an upgrade, man. The weight that you had to endure before you got that dream car was a long one, but I'm sure that it paid off. Your story is proof that patience and persistence can sometimes pay off in a big way. You scored the car for a great deal too, considering you know what these things are going for in today's market. 6,000 for a Charger? Most people would jump on a decent $10,000 shell charger today. So you scored yours for nearly half that. I'm 
looking at pictures of your car right now, and it looks great. So, Kevin, thank you for sending in your story. It was a good one, and I love stories like this. So, for those of you listening out there, if you have a Mopar story that you want me to share on this show, email it to me at chris at talkingmopars.com. Remember, no Mopar left behind. So with the prices of Mopar project cars getting crazy out there, one has to ask the question of what is the best budget Mopar project car to buy right now in today's market? But let me clarify something before we get into this topic. This opinion is based on Mopars for fun, not Mopars for flipping, even though the platform we are about to talk about has good investment potential. So if you're looking for information on buying Mopars to flip, this is not the episode for you. But There will definitely be an episode on flipping Mopars for profit in the future. So what is the best budget Mopar platform to build? I believe it to be the 1967 to 76 A bodies. A lot of us don't have deep enough pockets to afford the more sought after Mopars out there in the market, but you know what we lack in funds we make up for in enthusiasm. The beauty of this hobby is that you can be strategic in your first Mopar project car purchase and still have a bunch of fun without dipping into your Mopar 1K. Yes, that was a cheesy play on 401K, and no, I don't regret it. We're leaving it in because that's what we do here on Talking Mopars. We let our freak flag fly, and ours is red, white, and blue with a pentastar and the word Mopar on it. So, back to business. Contrary to popular belief, Mopars can still be had for reasonable prices. Now, I know that reasonable is a subjective term, but I think that the next few years is the time to strike on A-bodies before they suffer the same financial fate as their more sought-after relatives and prices start to soar. Now, there are die-hard B and E-body folks that don't care for A-bodies, which is fine. You know, not everyone owns Boardwalk and Park Place, but some of us just don't pass go or collect $200. Luckily for us, we still have the A-bodies, specifically the 1967 to 1976 model years. These vehicles include the Plymouth Valiant, the Plymouth Duster, the 1967 to 69 Plymouth Barracuda. Um, the Barracuda actually, for those of you that don't know, left the A-body lineup when it underwent a complete redesign and became an E-body alongside the original Dodge Challenger in 1970. But going back to the specific models of the A-bodies from 67 to 76, you also have the Plymouth Scamp, the Dodge Dart, the original Dodge Demon, Um, in 1971 and 72, and the Dart Sport, which replaced the demon name since it had caused problems with religious groups. So the Dart Sport came out in 73. Um, I would mention the Australian A-bodies because there are A-bodies that were in Australia. They were a little bit different. Actually, they were a lot different, but I can't speak on their pricing. So I really, I really don't know much about the Australian market. So, you know, the price is down under, I'm not quite sure. And I really don't know that much about those cars. So I need to do some more research before I can speak on those. So this topic pertains to American 67 to 76 A-bodies that can still be had for relatively cheap. It's not uncommon to find running and driving examples for well under 10,000 and very nice examples of these A-bodies in the high teens to mid-20s with the rarer versions of the cars, you know, your GTSs and your Formula S Barracudas, um, especially the big block cars. Um, They're the rarer versions, and they can get up into the high 20s and even more. I've seen, you know, 50, 60, even $70,000 resto mod A bodies. And when you talk about the 68 super stock cars, the Barracudas and the Darts, you're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. 
but the ones generally in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and some even 50s, they're all in show-worthy condition. Some have been restored from the ground up. You know, you get what you pay for. If you spend $5,000, chances are you're gonna, you may get a running and driving A-body, but I've seen some complete basket cases going for $5,000 too, and I think that's just a case of people trying to capitalize on the classic car market. They probably won't get that much. You know, I've talked about my Dart before. I paid $1,500 for it, and it was a rolling shell, basically. So there's more room to work with the A-bodies than any other platform of Mopars. So keep that in mind. Another good thing to keep in mind is that parts are really easy to come by with A-bodies since there were so many produced and many of the parts are interchangeable. So that's very nice. Uh, Another nice thing about A-bodies is that they are lighter than their heavyweight relatives. And we all know that power to weight ratios matter when it comes to performance. You know, the lighter with the more power, the faster you go. If you want to get into the Mopar game, but you want to do it on a budget with no sacrifice of the fun Mopar ownership brings you, look no further than the A-Body platform. My other honorable mentions for budget Mopars are Mopar trucks spanning several decades from the 60s all the way to the modern era. You know, you my favorites are the Tin Girls, the 72 to 80s, but even the, you know, mid-90s, early 2000 Dodge Rams make good project trucks. You can find nice two-wheel drive standard cabs with magnum v8s in them for relatively cheap and they're they're good to build you know i've seen some really nice builds with those platforms the early swept lines those are really cool and they're really they're coming around and you're seeing a lot more of them get built uh going all the way back to my first episode i talked about the c10 movement and how it annoys me that more people don't build dodges but i'm seeing more dodges come out and that's cool the only problem with more dodges coming out and people getting exposed to them is the prices of them are going to go up so If you're in the market for a Mopar project and you like the trucks, get one now while they're still reasonable. Another platform that I think makes great project Mopars are the C-bodies. So 1965 to 78, uh, what I call the big body Mopars. Both of those groups are still very reasonably priced. And my only concern with those are parts availability can be a little bit of a challenge with some of the Mopar trucks and the C-bodies because they're just not not as popular as the uh, B-bodies, E-bodies, and A-bodies. So you may have a little bit of problems, you know, finding parts, but luckily for us, there's still Mopar salvage yards out there that carry a lot of these cars. And since they're not that sought after, you know, in comparison to the other uh, platforms, there's still plenty of parts out there. You just have to find the good ones. I'll actually have other episodes of this show on why those Mopars make great budget Mopars too. And so we're going to talk more about the trucks and the C-bodies. I know there's some people out there, uh, quite a bit actually, that have C-bodies and they've requested that I talk about C-bodies. Look, I love C-bodies. I think they're awesome. So sit tight, folks. We're going to get to those. Give me some time. All right. In closing, the A-body platform is one that should not be ignored if you are in the market for a you know more budget-friendly Mopar. I also believe that they have excellent investment potential because the prices are only going to continue to rise over time. That's something to consider as well. To sum it all up, do not sleep on A-body Mopars. That does it for this week's show. For more information about this podcast or to listen and subscribe to the show, please visit TalkingMopars.com. That's also the best and easiest way to help me spread the word about this podcast by sharing the website with all of your Mopar addicted friends. Ratings and reviews are always nice too, and they help me to keep this show evolving and generally improving it over time. Before we shut this podcast down, I want to remind you that I still want to hear from you and I want to share your stories on the podcast. So email your stories, questions, and feedback for me. 
at chris at talkingmopars.com. Until our next talk, I am your host, Chris Albrecht, and that was Talking Mopars. Thank you for listening to Talking Mopars, your direct connection to all things Mopar. Until next time, remember, no Mopar left behind. 